Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is Bruce Redmond Becker, president of Becker & Becker, an integrated sustainable architecture and development firm based in Westport, Connecticut, which I have never been there. Bruce plans, designs, and implements projects that have a social and environmental value, rebuilding and strengthening communities to help revitalize cities. The firm completed the LEED Platinum 285-unit transit-oriented development in downtown Hartford, known as 777 Main as well as the LEED Platinum 500-unit, 32-story, 360 State Street project in New Haven, which incorporates, and I thought this was a really cool little fact, which incorporates the first fuel cell in the world, in the world, people, to power an apartment building. Becker & Becker was also responsible for the 500-unit LEED Silver Octagon apartment community on Roosevelt Island in Manhattan. But the project we're going to talk about today is Hotel Marcel in New Haven, Connecticut. The hotel is the adaptive reuse of the iconic Pirelli building, originally constructed in 1969 and designed by the legendary Bauhaus-trained architect Marcel Brewer. The former office building has been transformed into a 165-room boutique hotel and conference center. The hotel is designed to meet LEED Platinum certification standards and is anticipated to be the first passive house certified and net zero energy hotel in the United States. Just just doing it for the first time on everything. Hotel Marcel is 100% electric and designed to produce all of its energy on site with over 1,000 solar panels. 
Why don't you tell me one interesting thing about you that's not related to our industry and the work we do? Well, I am a nut about electric cars and electric transportation. When I was in high school, I commuted to New Canaan High School on an electric motorcycle back in 1976. Um, wow. I have, uh, I'm a big biker, and since about 2011, I've been driving different electric cars, starting with BMW had this sort of prototype called an Active E that you could rent for $200 a month, and then I got the i3, and my wife got a all-electric B-class Mercedes, and I then I made the big jump to Teslas, and I've been driving Teslas for a while. I don't. I must be allergic to um, exhaust because I just have done everything I can in my personal life and professionally to get away from burning fossil fuels, and that started at a very early age, oddly. As I saw from the intro, it's like you're just. It sounds to me like you're just totally paving the way. Um, so I'm really interested to talk about this project because I have to admit, when we first set this up and I went to look at the project, my first reaction was, oh, wow. I knew I was going to look up a hotel, but that was not the building I expected to see. I'm like, they turned that into a hotel? And my first thought was, I want to go stay there because it is just such a cool looking building. But you know, then I started thinking about, wait, they're achieving all of these sustainability things in their buildings. And that's a 1969 building. So I am just really super interested to hear about how all this went down. So I'd like to start with maybe you could just give me kind of the story of the project, you know, history, goals, aspirations. Yeah. So the building we're talking about is um, what's most commonly called the Pirelli building in New Haven. It was actually originally called the Armstrong Rubber Company building. It was the world headquarters for a major tire company, Armstrong. It was really part of a urban renewal vision that the mayor of New Haven, Dick Lee, had, which was to put New Haven on the map as a progressive city, not only for world-class educational institutions like Yale, but also for uh, corporate America. So the building is probably one of the most visible works of Bauhaus architecture in New England. 140,000 cars pass it every day right on 95 by the New Haven Harbor sort of a gateway to the city. It's sort of a legendary building. You know, brutalism is now back in vogue again, but for a long time it was also a very controversial building because people didn't understand brutalism and many people thought it was a very ugly building. They didn't quite understand the stark concrete facade and it's got this really cool structure that cantilevers the office building above the what was the originally the sort of factory and research part of the building. But I think it was really ahead of its time because now there's all kinds of heroic architectural structural design to to have buildings do these gymnastics. But this was a notable project in the 60s to have a building that was with hover in the air and sort of see through it to the city beyond. But Armstrong was bought by Pirelli Tire in 1988. And then in 1999, Pirelli moved out of the building. So it was vacant from 1999 until we bought the building in... 2019. So it was a wow. very uh, important building that was neglected and was sort of a symbol of decline and it was a puzzle to be solved. So 
I had been doing apartment buildings, you know, affordable housing, supportive housing, mixed-use projects, and uh, along with like 140,000 other people, I drove by the building every day looking at it and thinking, well, gee, what a cool building. Someone has to do something with it. So I'm an architect and developer. I went to Yale for my master's in architecture and also an MBA, consciously uh, hoping to broaden my reach so that I wasn't just focusing on design, but could have a bigger influence on the purpose of a building. I could sort of pick the projects that I could undertake and I could have more of a say in their energy systems and, you know, what their program was. Because I, I really think that architects are much more creative than developers at coming up with programs and uses of buildings and ideas for them. You know, anyone can be a developer. Architects have to go through a real training process and have to understand the built environment um, in a way that maybe gives them more insight as to, you know, how a building might be reused or repurposed or have a better sense of priorities. So this has sort of been my thing for at least the last 20 years is, is sort of finding projects and I come up with ways to conceive of them and finance them and have sort of this integrated approach. Super unique for an architect. I love it because, I don't know, we're probably going to get fried um, for talking about anybody can be a developer. And and I, I have in the past found sometimes developers are very challenging to work with because it's kind of tunnel vision on the dollar. Yeah, same here. I mean, I worked for, I, I had developers as clients and I hated it. I mean, every time I would do another project with the same client, they would want to reduce my fee and take all the good stuff out of the project. So my identity is as an architect, but I do um, the development as a way to avoid having to have clients. And, uh, <laughs> the serious problem-solving yeah. <laughs> skills right there. I love it. Well, it's actually easier to be a developer than to have to chase down business. You know, you could take all the energy people put into putting fancy portfolios and having a marketing team and PR team and take all that energy and just do the development. It's much easier. You can you don't have to make client presentations. You just figure the stuff out, make decisions in an hour that might take a month to make if you have a, a client that doesn't see the world that you, the way you do. Now, you could also get into deep trouble if you don't know what you're doing, which is why I always try to put together a team of experts. And um, I think my greatest strength is that I uh, know what I don't know and have to figure that out. Absolutely agree there. So, how did you get from seeing that building, somebody's got to do something about it, I'm going to do something about it, to Boutique Hotel? Yeah, so um, the building was owned by IKEA. The building had been vacant for several years, and IKEA decided to build their big retail store in Connecticut on the site. And they actually tore down the back of the building, which was a little bit of a defeat for preservationists, because at the back, of there was a long... 200 foot long extension of the building where they tested tires and did research. Um, but they needed that, Ikea needed that for their surface parking. So the building uh, was largely preserved intact uh, without that wing that was on and it sat there. And, uh, you know, it was really top priority for the preservation community in New Haven and in Connecticut in the region. But Ikea owned it. And they were using it as a billboard. They would put these huge five-story high banners up for their latest sale, which I think it sort of worked uh. for them. But it was a little bit demeaning because of the great architectural legacy of the building. So I had the challenge of 
persuading IKEA to part with the property. They had been approached by a half dozen other developers, mainly hotel developers, who presented them with plans, uh, but they couldn't really get too excited about it. So I did a lot of research on the history of the building, but also I researched the history of IKEA's relationship with the building, talked to a lot of people, and put together a plan that I thought would be impossible for them to say no to. I, I even offered to have an IKEA-branded hotel initially. And also I knew that IKEA wanted a building that would complement their use. If people are going to come spend a half a day shopping for furniture, they might want to have a great restaurant nearby that they can, you know, beyond, if they've had their fill of Swedish meatballs in the cafeteria at <laughs> IKEA, they can come over and, and have a drink at the bar, or that maybe there could be a conference um, of their folks um, uh, that would just allow more possible customers to come to IKEA and also IKEA customers to you know, have a, another amenity nearby. So this was my pandemic project. I mean, some people learned how to make sourdough bread, but I was, uh, I sort of figured out, well, how, how to make a hotel. As I said earlier, I know what I don't know. And I did a certificate program at the Cornell Hotel School in hotel investment and management and had sort of a refresher course. And I put together a team of consultants um, that could sort of guide me through the process. And I ended up presenting this idea to IKEA. It took about a year for them to take me seriously. But then we worked out an agreement where we bought the building for $1.2 million from them, which sounds wow. like a steal because it's 110,000 square feet, but it had asbestos in it. So we had to spend several million dollars taking that out in six months of time. But then also we agreed to use IKEA products. You know, we have these great IKEA mirrors that you buy for $40. It probably would have cost us $400 to make, even locally, and uh, uh, all of the quartz counter materials that we have in the vanities are using their products. Um, so we sort of forged a partnership with them. They wanted us to make sure that we didn't develop the site in a way that obstructed visibility of their entrance. You know, we originally had some solar canopies in the front of the hotel that would have obscured the front door got rid of that and moved moved the solar panels elsewhere. So it was really a collaborative approach, and they've, they've been a fantastic partner for us. But the focus of the effort, in addition to sort of getting IKEA to say yes, which was half the battle, was coming up with a plan that I could finance. You know, there are a lot of developers that just have family money, and they can just do anything they want. This I had to finance this so that it could pay the mortgage and get a return on investment for the equity investors. So it had to really make sense. And um, in order to finance it, we put the building on the National Register so we could avail ourselves to the federal historic tax credits, which is a key part of the financing, as well as state historic credits. Not only did we have to meet the standards, secretary standards for historic rehabilitation, which you, is a requirement when you're using historic tax credits, but we also wanted to do something that would be appropriate to this really important architectural landmark that Marcel Breuer designed. So because of the asbestos in the building, we two of the floors had already been gutted. So there was basically just the shell of the building. Upper floors had asbestos around, so we had to clear those out as well. But we did preserve the original executive offices on the top floor of the building, which had these great views and full height wood paneling that looked like they're out of the set of Mad Men. And so we have these really special suites there. But the two themes of our approach have been how do we celebrate 
the spirit of the Bauhaus architecture without trying to pretend like we're Marcel Breuer. So the approach we took is sort of a high design approach, but there's nothing overly fancy or intricate about it. We There was a module to the building, a five-foot module that we everything plugged into. So we have 10-foot wide hotel rooms and 15-foot wide hotel rooms. We have the original ceiling system was a concealed spline, sort of tegular ceiling system that we put back in the building. That was a sort of a requirement for the National Park Service. We embraced all of the remaining detail, these beautiful stone tile surrounds for the elevators and the entryways, cleaned those up. There are these incredible staircases at the north and south end of the building that have this board form concrete, beautifully crafted blue steel railings and mahogany uh, handrails and these trapezoidal terrazzo treads and risers. It's the same stair design that you see as at the original Whitney Museum that Breuer designed around the same time in Manhattan that has become, I guess, the Met Breuer and uh, after the Whitney move. There's a lot of original artwork. Every king room has this beautiful textile artwork made by a Brooklyn artist named Corey Siegler. It's actually made of interior design samples, fabric samples that were going to be thrown out because oh, nice. those of us who, who are, are, you know, have interiors libraries, you know, every year they come in with a new line of stuff and all the other stuff ends up who knows where it goes. We, we now send it back to the manufacturer, but who knows what happens after that. But we decided- I used to you take know, it home to my kids for school projects. Could you just get, ended up with piles and piles of that stuff. That's what we, we actually took all these samples from our interiors library in Dutch East and gave Corey some inspiration uh, from the Bauhaus uh, geometry. And she made by hand these original textile pieces for each of the King rooms. And my wife, Kramer Simsbecker, actually curated all the art in the public areas and in the guest rooms, and she's a printmaker herself, so there's some, some of her artwork. In the elevator lobbies, we actually used fabrics that were designed by the original Bauhaus artists, Annie Albers, uh, who is the wife of Joseph Albers, the painter who did the famous homage to the square. Uh, she has an incredible set of textile designs that she did and uh, they're now being reproduced by design techs and we actually used her fabric on the Breuer chair so you have Marcel Breuer and Annie Albers reunited again at, you know 100 years after they were at the Bauhaus in the chairs that are upholstered and then in, in the elevator lobbies Gunther Stoltz who was another one of the legendary female textile artists from the Bauhaus uh, we actually took the design tech samples and my wife hand-stitched them and we framed them. So we came up with a very creative approach to uh, the art program in the building that was sort of recycling things and reusing things that related to the Bauhaus legacy of the building. So we celebrate a lot of those features from a strict preservation perspective. We replaced all the windows with triple glaze passive house certified windows and, and really took a comprehensive look at the building envelope. This is going to be the first hotel that will receive a Passive House certification. Passive House is a voluntary standard and design principle for energy efficiency in a building, which reduces the building's ecological footprint. Originating in 1988 with a focus on housing, the standard has since expanded beyond residential properties. 
In the U.S., there are two versions being promoted by two separate entities, the Passive House Institute, PHI, and the Passive House Institute U.S., PHIUS. Today, the standard is based on five principles, air tightness, ventilation, waterproofing, heating and cooling, and electrical loads. Everyone around the world is saying that we have to stop using fossil fuels. It's, it's plain. We, you, know, you were just mentioning earlier that it's over 100 degrees in Portland, Oregon, which uh, who would have thought? But it's all because we're just burning fossil fuels like it, there's no tomorrow. And um, if we keep doing it, there won't be any tomorrow. So I've quickly decided one of my design criteria would be no fossil fuels, not even a natural gas connection to the hotel. I didn't think that would be that unusual, but it turns out no one else has done that. Often the um, cooking range is the um, gateway drug for fossil fuels. Uh, <laughs> I love and that. so, yeah, you know, but you know, in California now, there's like 25 municipalities and cities that won't allow you to have a new fossil fuel gas line to, connected to a building. So it's something we just have to stop doing. And if anyone is listening to this that is deciding whether they should bring a natural gas line into their building that they're designing, I would urge them not to and if they've got one there they should remove it and take a credit for it because you don't i'm not aware of any building that needs a fossil fuel connection i mean if any if a hotel doesn't need one no building needs one i mean we're we use uh variable refrigerant flow heat pumps for heating and cooling they're great technology it's only one system to buy and maintain as opposed to having an air conditioning system and a heating system Uh, we actually have the first large-scale commercial domestic hot water system that is installed in America by Mitsubishi. They were marketing it in other markets, in Europe and Japan, but uh, they now are selling them in the United States. And so even for large-scale projects that need a lot of hot water, you don't need fossil fuels. And then we decided, as the icing on the cake, was to try to make all the energy on site. So we have over a 1,000 solar panels. The roof is covered in solar panels. We have these big solar canopies over the surface parking lot, which actually is a great feature because... Like in the summer, you can park and your car doesn't overheat because it's under shadow. And if it's raining, uh, you have uh, a little protection from the rain as you come into the hotel. Another thing we have, um, which is unique, is we have a power over Ethernet lighting system. Power over Ethernet is a technique for delivering DC power to devices over copper Ethernet cabling, eliminating the need for separate power supplies and outlets. This technique provides several benefits time and cost savings, flexibility, safety, reliability, and scalability. One of the largest building loads uh, is lighting, and lighting accounts for about 30% of your total building energy load. This is Hannah Walker, Chief Operating Officer at Sinclair Digital. Sinclair Digital is a digital services company that designs and implements low-voltage DC solutions. This includes traditional IT solutions, as well as low-voltage systems like lighting, motorized window treatments, and more. So when you pull AC power and you convert it to DC, it gets very hot and it loses energy efficiency at the light. So that's anywhere between 9-20% to energy loss at that point. So we changed it to where we're powering it directly with low-voltage DC across Ethernet cables. Basically, at Marcel Hotel, we were engaged to do all the traditional low voltage design, which includes, you know, wireless access points, the IP phones, but then we overlaid another layer of low voltage power onto other types of devices. So we designed all of the power to light fixtures 
and then we did all the power to the motorized window treatments at Marcel as well. Which also includes, because we're doing the shades and the lighting controls, we also put together all the room automation, so all the control panels in the room, how they interact with lights and shades, how guests interact with the spaces. Uh, we designed all that system as well. So instead of having to have a licensed electrician you know, wire everything with line voltage to every single fixture, and we have you know, thousands of light fixtures in the hotel, you just uh, string Ethernet to these computer nodes, really, that then supply power, DC power, to all the lights. So when you have an existing structure, you're limited to the floor-to-ceiling height that's existing. And in Hotel Marcel, in particular, because it was a historic building, one of the features they had to keep was the layout of the corridors. So they couldn't make the corridors any wider, any larger, and they were required to use these one-by-four light fixtures that you see in the corridors. They're, they're actually the historic existing light fixtures. And so they ended up having to have these one-by-four light fixtures, so they didn't want to have any access panels outside of those. And then they were limited with these narrow corridors with not a lot of ceiling space because, like I said, the floor to ceiling light cannot, height cannot be expanded, and you don't want to have uncomfortable guest ceiling height. Now you have network switches everywhere powering these lights. Where do you put them? Where do you put the equipment? So it does make it a little bit more challenging when you, everyone's fighting for ceiling space, the HVAC, the plumbing, now we've got technology going in the ceiling. Um, but one of the, the big advantages of using low voltage cabling is that it is very slender and narrow and it takes much less copper and much less space than traditional MC cable. So that is an advantage and another reason that the low voltage solution worked really well at Marcel. You know, I, I had this idea that um, I would just buy off the shelf down lights, um, just little MR16 lights that are DC lights and we would hook them in. But what we discovered is that MR16 LED bulbs have electronics in them that when they actually dim, they use more power than when they aren't dimmed. And so that had messed up our calculations, and so we had to have some special MR16 bulbs made without those electronic components. So now when we dim the lights down to 5%, we're actually only using 5% of the power. So we, we did have some discoveries along the way, technical ones, that allowed us to... Um, perfect the system and so it took us about an extra month or two of refining systems to get everything to work right because a lot of these things were sort of new systems. We use a lot of power over ethernet and to power devices which is which is great but it does have limitations primarily that it can go to 90 watts today. Another technology that we've used at Mar Marcel is called uh, digital electricity and it's now being ratified as what they call class 4 power. And so essentially you can move up to a thousand watts of power across a low voltage 18 gauge cable, a single pair up to a thousand feet, just because it's pulsing packets of energy at 700 pulses a second. And so this is a great way that you can eliminate circuit panels, conduit, and you can really start to optimize the cost effectiveness of doing low voltage in buildings. So we kind of have these two different low voltage solutions happening. We've got the digital electricity, which is sending, you know, a thousand watts of power up to a kilometer without any power loss. And then you can run that without conduit and you can send that all through the building. And then you power network switches with that. And then you send low voltage PoE from those points on. And so you've kind of got a multitude of different solutions that make up the total package at Marcel. 
I'm a big fan of the power over Ethernet system and what what Sinclair Digital um, has done for us, and they're um, they're building their whole business around this, which I think is really going to take off. Power over Ethernet is really in its infancy, but I think within a decade or so, you'll see a large portion of new buildings using it because it, it has such promise. Even our shades, we have these really cool window surrounds that we spent about a year designing. They're, they're actually fairly simple window surrounds made out of hardwood uh, maple, and they replicate the original geometry of the window surrounds for when Armstrong Rubber Company you know, had the building as an office building. But instead of sheetrock, they're made of this beautiful, warm wood, and they have a little integrated slot on the right and left side, which is where the blackout shade comes down. So, you know, we, we didn't want to have like a plastic sort of track for the blackout shades. And in addition to having a quiet room, people like to be able to make it dark. At least some people do when they sleep. So we, we have a motorized shades. They're also DC powered, powered with the power of our Ethernet system. So uh, we have, uh, you'll be in these corner rooms and uh, at your bedside, you can press a button and all the shades will come down and make it really dark. Or you can use uh, sheer shades and, and have them be translucent. I was, you know, thinking as you were talking, okay, this building was originally built in 1969 and then it sat for a number of years. We all know what happens to a building if it's not being lived in. It it seems to degrade a whole, a whole lot faster than if bodies are in it, you know, using it and doing things. And so, you know, it, you guys had some pretty aggressive sustainability goals. You know, it's one thing to know what you want, but then it's another thing to actually make those things happen in a building that was built during a time when nobody was thinking about any of these things. What were your biggest challenges in the actual design of everything in this building to get there? Yeah. Well, you know, the building actually aged very well because it's a concrete and steel structure with concrete precast panels for its facade. It uses a system called Mosai, which was very popular in the 60s, mainly for office buildings and institutional buildings. It's a proprietary, super high-strength concrete that uses special metal formwork, and you end up with like a 6,000 psi concrete panel, which is you know stronger and more durable than a lot of stone. And so that facade was not going to go anywhere. The structure itself, you know, the building was built in former New Haven Harbor that was filled in when the highway was brought around. And so it's on like a thousand piles. The structure was over-designed. So the building actually uh, is sort of a bulletproof building. It would, If we did nothing to it, it really wouldn't be that different 50 years from now, uh, other than that the sheetrock would be rotting and the, right. you know, the windows were failing. But the basic concrete structure was quite resilient. So our challenge was to remake the building envelope so that it could be certified for passive house standards. So we did uh, work with Stephen Winter Associates as our green building consultant. And they also were our, our building envelope consultant. And we worked with different materials. We wanted to use a spray foam, but one that was environmentally responsible because some of the spray foams aren't. And then we had some issues with thermal transfer. You know, one of the things you do with passive houses, you have to eliminate thermal bridges you have to do really good air sealing, do modeling to make sure that your thermal transfers are 
are really minimized and you don't have, uh, you're not trapping moisture and creating mold. So we did a lot of modeling with them and came up with a combination of a uh, closed cell spray foam. We had to sort of get behind these structural members. And so there were some areas where we couldn't quite reach everything. So we, we also filled some of the voids with a open cell foam. And then where we were insulating and sealing adjacent to the windows themselves, we used an aerogel tape, an aerogel blanket. So there were like five different materials we used to insulate the facade uh, so that it would um, there wouldn't be any sort of thermal bridges. Uh, the windows themselves, one of the challenges there was that the National Park Service had never approved a triple glaze window in any of the thousands of projects that they have been approving for the last 50 years for the historic tax credit. So we had to explain to them why they should <laughs> do something that they'd never done before. But we found that there was evidence, both physical evidence and also in the drawings, that there were interior storm sashes that Breuer had designed. Uh, we were just lucky that the, um, the depth of the triple glaze window was pretty much the same as the depth from the original exterior pane and the interior storm sash. So we were able to persuade them on that. We're really happy that we did the passive house because the windows, you know, we're only about 400 feet from the major highway there. And yet when you're in these rooms, some of the corner rooms have 10 windows in them. They're big windows. There's 30 inches wide and, and 60 inches tall. And they're spaced on five foot modules. So you have a lot of glass in these hotel rooms. But you stand there and you're like a couple hundred feet from the highway and you can't hear anything. It's oh, when that's you, amazing. When you designed a passive house, you're sealing out all the thermal transfer, but you're also sealing out the noise at the same time. So these are the quietest hotel rooms in New England, uh, which is a big plus. We get, we're getting five-star reviews every day. We're also getting a lot of travelers really care about their environmental footprint and sustainability. And so we're, we're now the favorite hotel for people who are passionate environmentalists. The Connecticut AIA is hosting their fall conference at the hotel. We have the Green Building Council, even the Connecticut Department of Community and Economic Development. You know, they're looking at hosting their meetings at our hotel. The utility company is having forums at our hotel. So we're, I think by, you know, embracing sustainability completely, we actually have a huge marketing edge. And that has helped us from a business perspective. So pick your number one most complex part of this project, whether it be in design or construction. And tell me what you learned from that. What will you take forward? I think it was creating this microgrid that we have with a one megawatt hour battery. Um, that's like having 15 Teslas inside the building that kick in when the grid goes down. And then we have a thousand solar panels and then we have um, an inverter and a microgrid controller. In a normal building, as I was mentioning, you've got incoming power from the street, and that's coming in at high voltage AC power. And then you're distributing that throughout the building using AC, and then at every single endpoint, like I mentioned, shades and lights, you're converting that to DC to power those things. And then if you want a really energy efficient building, right, you can put solar and renewables, which is taking renewable energy, which all charges, all is stored with DC, and then you're putting it in batteries, which is in DC, and then you're converting it back to AC, right, to go through the building, and then back to DC to go to the devices. 
So you can see there's lots of energy being lost. Every time you do that conversion, you're losing maybe 15% depending on the product, how efficient it is. So what, what they did at Hotel Marcel, which is one of the reasons that it's so energy efficient, is they're doing renewable energy in DC, storing it in batteries, which is DC, distributing it with DC, and then powering devices in DC. So you're creating a DC microgrid is what that term is coming from and creating a complete DC loop, which is removing all those energy losses, which is how they've able to lower their load enough to have complete power with their solar panels. We could have gotten a Tesla mega pack, like a three megawatt hour system that would have cost like $2 million and we've had to wait for a long time. Instead, we sort of got the components and then we put it all together and um you know we had to commission it and that was there was no one consultant that really did that it's something i sort of had to do myself and um things i would have done differently is i might have just gone ahead and gotten the tesla system so i didn't have to do all the integration myself and put that outside somewhere on the site by having this inside which is what the lg batteries required we have to have like a redundant air conditioning system to make sure we manage any possible thermal overloads with the battery system. So that was probably technically the most complicated thing. And I think the other thing I would have done is I would have actually added more solar panels and bigger batteries so that we could make sure that we could endure extended out outages. We've already had three grid outages since we've opened, which is sort of crazy wow. because in, down to, in, in major cities, you don't expect to have that. But we had a breakfast meeting with 150 people, and then we started seeing these generator trucks going over to the adjacent building, which has this refrigerated food terminal, and wondering, well, what's going on? And then we look. I can look on this um, Ajito uh, portal. I can see what's going on with the energy systems, and lo and behold, the power for the whole neighborhood was out, and our, our, the solar panels and the batteries were providing the power and no one even knew it because it was seamless so that's um, great though <laughs> but, but yeah so so that gives us an advantage and you know all these things actually give you know more comfort to the guests and make the operations more seamless even though it requires a little more thinking up front i already know i have a number of listeners on this podcast that are just gonna geek out over this episode they are going to totally geek out over this episode. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't get a bunch of phone calls of people saying, okay, you need to come talk to us. Yeah, well, come come, come visit. I'm, I'm, I'm always very generous about showing people around and sharing sharing our experience. You know, the, the other thing I'll just add is, for me, saving energy is, because I'm the owner, like who would want to have a separate bill for natural gas and who would want to spend more on electricity every month than they have to? So all these sustainability things we've done pay for themselves. And it's really out of self-interest that we don't want to be buying more energy than we need. And, and we there's special financing, these CPACE loans and grants. And don't let anyone tell you that they can't afford to do these things because I can't afford not to. I, I love that. I love that you just said that because I know that we're going to have a bunch of architects going, hmm, architect developer. This guy made all this all these things work that we didn't think you know, so many people, when they talk about sustainable buildings, I've heard that for years. So we, we just can't afford to do that. But you make a great point, And I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I have time for one final question. This is my new end of episode final question. I had a different one the first two seasons. And I love that I get to ask you this. So my question is, what is your world domination statement, personal or professional? 
what mark do you as an individual hope to leave on the world? Oh, um, let's not only reduce our use of fossil fuels, but let's just stop doing it today. We can all do it. We can get that induction range instead of the gas one. We can bike to work. We can take transit. We can get an electric car. We can get a heat pump. But it's not like, well, let me do this in five years. We have to do it like tomorrow. And I honestly would suggest that architects not take on work if it involves designing a building that uses fossil fuels. And don't be afraid to tell your client, you know, listen, I'm feeling a responsibility to protect the planet. And maybe someone, if you need someone to design this building that uses fossil fuels, maybe you need to talk to someone else. It's a tall order, but I don't think we're going to make the change. We we all know, as I'm saying, I think it's supposed to be 95 today here, as we're all sitting and seeing all of the things going on in our planet, we all know that, I hope we all know that we're kind of out of time. Yeah, and, and everyone needs a little bit of a nudge. Your clients will actually save money if they do this, but they need someone to nudge them. And if they don't believe it, uh, have them give me a call and I'll talk to them and they can come visit us. You better go, if you don't already have some kind of answering machine or answering <laughs> service, you better get it before we air this thing. Oh, no. They're, 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 um, people are coming um, already to the, we have 165 rooms. So as long as you don't have 100, more than 165 people coming on the same day, we're fine. Well, and just, just the fact that you did this and you made all of these things happen down to relamping the original lamps. I mean, all of these things that you made happen, a lot of people are oftentimes sitting back waiting for somebody else to do it first to see if it works. Um, see if they actually did it and kept it within a budget. See if it's working well. And so you've already made a a huge inroad for the rest of the profession to show them that it can be done and it is working and our hotel is full and you know it's profitable and it's energy efficient and everybody's saving in the long run so just having that to hold up you put put a stamp on the world that you may not know or even realize um, that you've put out there it was a, a real honor and privilege to be able to renovate the building and um it's the least i could do is to do it in a way that could hopefully be a, a value to other folks so yeah but that's my world domination statement is let's just stop using fossil fuels tomorrow thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos details and more related project and product information that we discussed today while you're there take a look around rcat.com for over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.